Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 8th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Let's see, today I get a, it's going to be a full on public health kind of show. We're going to first have on Dr. Roxanne Silver, UCI professor of psychological science, medicine, and public health, and she's also the associate director of the Advanced Program. Has over the years been doing some really interesting work on how we experience publicly shared trauma. Then, as I said, I promise, staying in this expansive public health realm, we'll hear from UCI professor Scott Bartell, who will give a look under the hood about those PFOSs, PFAS plastic in our environment and in our bodies. It's really current work and on the radar of uh, people representing us in uh, local and federal places. We'll be right back after a station break. Thank you for staying tuned all. Every time something dreadful occurs on the public radar, my first guest, Dr. Roxanne Silver, is likely to start rounding up subjects to gauge the impacts of how trauma is felt. Roxanne Silver is professor of psychological science, medicine, and public health, and is the associate director of the advanced program in the Office of Exclusion Excellence for Faculty and Graduate Study Equity Diversity at UC Irvine. Roxy's spent over three decades studying acute and long-term psychological and physical reactions to stressful life experience, including personal trauma such as loss, physical disability, and childhood sexual victimization, as well as larger collective events such as terror attacks, war, and natural disasters. And I'm going to push her a little bit on what keeps breaking around us that I think a lot of us just get triggered when we know that this topic is going to come around. Her research has been funded by the NSF, the National Institute of Mental Health, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Public Health Service. She's guided governments in the U.S. and abroad in the aftermath of terrorist attacks and earthquakes and served on numerous senior advisory committees and task forces for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, providing advice to the department and its component agencies on the psychological impact of disasters and terrorism. She's also testified in Congress on the role of social science research in disaster preparedness. Remember, but we should be getting prepared for, name your, name your episode, at her research at and, and response, and the impact of media following disasters. That's another one. That, that triggers me, too. Roxanne Silver is president-elect of the Federation of Associations in Behavioral Brain Sciences, has served as president of the Society of Experimental Psychology, was founding director and chair of the Board of Directors of Psychology Beyond Borders. She is a fellow of the American Psychological Association, Association for Psychological Science, Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research, and Society of Experimental Psychology. She's won many awards, and this very 
long introduction is an indicator of why it's been ta- it's taken so long for me to get her on this show. I've been at, I ask her every time I see her at a public talk. So I well, I just going to put her a little bit on the spot and, and ask what what prizes of all of these that I could have listed. Which ones mean the most to you? I think for me, the most important awards that I have received have been teaching awards. The teaching awards. I I really appreciate and enjoy teaching. I've been teaching for decades, and I've been very fortunate to receive a number of teaching awards that are really meaningful to me. Okay, and there they are many. And Roxanne's completed, as I wrap her introduction here, completed her BA in psychology and her PhD in social psychology at Northwestern University. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Roxanne Silver. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there's a great deal of public trauma fodder out there, and Mm -hmm. we'll try to examine as many of those arenas as time allows. It's often the case that people in the sciences, especially behavioral sciences, have a very personal, affirmative connection with their chosen field of research. Tell us about how you got into this field briefly. My research is on coping with stressful life events. And the first instance that I had of a traumatic experience was a very close friend of mine's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And within three weeks, he was dead. I was young and I didn't know how to help my friend. I didn't really understand what she had just gone through. And at that point, I decided that I really wanted to understand how people cope with events that they can neither predict nor control. And I started looking at personally experienced adversity. And when I moved to California in the late 80s, I became very interested in large-scale events. Shortly after I moved here, there was a large firestorm in the early 90s. 93, I remember yes. that in October. Yes. Yeah, we were all evacuating we from were, University Hills. Yes. and Or I, we stopped evacuating because <laughs> it seemed like too big a deal. Well, I lived in Laguna Beach at the time. Oh, you were right and there. And I was right in the middle of that. And shortly thereafter, I began studying large-scale events, uh, mass violence events, the Columbine High School shooting, and then the September 11th terrorist attacks, and then since then, quite a number of mass violence events. So there's so many, there's there's a few method things I want to find out from you. We're talking about this deeply emotional aspect of it. And of course, I always wonder, like, how many, how many scabs can an academic pull off? And I mean, your, your whole study is another scab pulling off session, you must go back to the very beginning with another sort of new case study of a publicly shared trauma. Well, sadly, and unfortunately, these events are occurring with increasing frequency, or if not increasing frequency, certainly increasing awareness, in large part because of the advent of 24-7 media. And so we can learn within minutes about a shooting that occurs in Pennsylvania, and we can also learn within minutes about a mass violence event that occurs in Europe. Okay, so I guess we're, we're going to hop around and change up the order a little bit um, so we can remain a bit coherent with what, uh, tack on what's, what's exactly that you're uh, opening up here is that the social media sort of giveth and taketh away. It's, mm-hmm. It gives you data that you can use. I mean, mm-hmm. probably pretty good data, mm-hmm. as well as 
it's um, it can be a validating kind of platform for people that are anguishing over a publicly shared trauma. Mm -hmm. It can also be an intensifier, a, um, a, 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 a complicator of publicly shared trauma. So you probably have a very complicated relationship with social media, Roxanne. Well, well it's also traditional media. I don't want to... Uh, I think traditional media plays a very important role, and we saw that after yes. the Columbine High School shooting. That was the first event in which the media descended upon the community, and I was there in the days after the Columbine High School shooting where students gathered in a park right by the school, and media uh, outlets were... Um, either asking students to wear microphones, hidden microphones, or they were actually dropping microphones into crowds of students. And that was the first time that we were seeing the way in which media could intrude on the trauma that was being experienced by a group of people. So Columbine was the first, I would say, media-driven traumatic experience. But in the aftermath of 9-11, my colleagues and I began a study in which we saw very quickly that, again, television was a mechanism through which the trauma of the 9-11 attacks could be dispersed far broader than just the directly impacted community. And so we, living in California, saw the buildings fall repeatedly over and over again. And so that's traditional media. Now, in recent years, there's a and the social media has added to this. And I'll just take a second to tell Do. you how, how I got interested in social media. The day after the Boston Marathon bombing, I was contacted by a reporter who had read my work on the role of traditional media and television in activating trauma beyond, beyond the directly impacted community. Right. And she said to me, I'm getting links to videos of very gruesome images of the Boston Marathon bombing. I'm getting a tweet and all of a sudden an image pops up that I was not prepared for. What's the impact of seeing these kinds of images? Were you ready for an answer uh, with that? I said, no, we don't know. This is the first event in which we were seeing, at least in the United States, very graphic images of adversity and trauma. And so at that point, we began a study of the Boston Marathon bombing. And since then, there have been a number of traumas that have occurred, and we've been following people. And what we have learned is that it's, of course, not just television, that, there, that media of all sort, traditional and social media, can transmit traumatic images, sounds, videos of these adversities that, as you were mentioning at the very beginning, can re-trigger people about experiences that they've exper had earlier in their right. life, or can reactivate the distress that they were feeling, or can just traumatize them themselves. We studied whether or not people saw images of the ISIS beheadings that I could never bring myself. To, I was never going to open up that, well, get that genie out of the bottle. Did you see? I, Witness I, it? I, I you did knew. not. I, I, I don't watch any. Uh, I don't engage in social media myself, and I don't watch videos. I don't watch television, and that's a very conscious effort 
to minimize my exposure to these kinds of events. But we know from research that we've conducted that watching the ISIS videos or the, the beheading videos in particular could have long-term long psychological impact. So you don't have to just be there. If you see or hear something graphic and gruesome, it may reactivate distress that you experienced from a prior personal event or can be traumatizing itself. There's so many, so many directions I would like to go in this, and we're not going to have an opportunity. So uh, it may be a matter that what after your six more uh, appearances at Congress and you'll have more time back to come back because <laughs> there's so much. So how do you go about then studying, measuring, and understanding the impact of stressful events on our lives? What's the I, just a few mechanics about the the methods of this, so we understand just the the rigor there that's involved for an academician to help us appreciate what's going on. Decades ago, when I started this kind of work, my students and I, or my colleagues and I, would conduct interviews with people who had experienced these kinds of events, or when they were very personal, sometimes we would ask individuals to write about their experiences. So I studied individuals who had been sexually traumatized or sexually abused by a father or another male guardian, and that was not conducted with interviews. It, in the aftermath of the Columbine High School shooting, we conducted interviews, but in recent years, I've tried to conduct my research on large representative samples across the United States. And in those kinds of studies, we try to collect our data online so we can get thousands of individuals to fill out one of our lengthy surveys within a few days of an event. So we were able to study the Orlando, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, within four or five days after the shooting. Really? Because we work, I often and recently work with organizations who can help me collect those data. That That's what a lot of my funding agencies from the national You're on the government. speed dial. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I'm able to, uh, I'm very lucky that I have been able to get funding to start these studies very soon after these events. And so now most of my data collection, not all, but most of my data collection is done online where people complete anonymous surveys and we can follow them over time. Are there differences in how we experience and we cope with a man-made versus a, a, we'll call it a natural disaster? Yes, in fact, there there seems to be a variety of differences between what is sometimes called an act of God, that would be a hurricane or an earthquake, firestorms, which I have studied, as and mass violence events, terrorism or uh, school shooting, in large part because when you have a an event such as a mass violence event or a school shooting, there is a perpetrator. There is clearly someone who can be blamed. And in that case, when you can blame somebody else for your sadness or your distress, it it can um, 
Is there there's a different coping? I, I I'm not sure that one copes differently, but there are it, it alters the meaning of the event when it's perpetrated by someone who you can identify. People have a very difficult time making sense of events like that. And we see differences between human perpetrated events and events that are that, that can of course befall people at any time but that are considered natural disasters. Well, you know what Roxanne I'll just mention I make a distinction here or a finer point with firestorms. There is there is a perpetrator. There could be an arsonist. Yeah, yes. We could say that a utility was malfeasant in their managing their infrastructure, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. it was in the moment or whether it's sort of the ongoing kind mm-hmm. of maintenance. Mm-hmm. So, yes. so I guess that kind but, of puts you in. It's sort of in the middle of a natural and a man-made well, disaster. Well, firestorms are really very interesting, as you say, because the start of the event is can be perpetrated by, let's say, a wire an individual that or falls firm. or. But usually it spreads via the wind from natural conditions. Tsunamis are are another event. Sometimes you can see after an earthquake that there will be a tsunami. And sometimes people want to blame the government for not warning them, for example. Right. But the culpability the, the actual event is very different from when somebody comes into a bar and starts shooting dozens of people. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Roxanne Silver, professor of psychological science, medicine, and public health. She's also the associate director of the advanced program in the Office of Exclusive Excellence. She's an international expert in the field of stress and coping. Well, one thing you did on Homeland Security, you alerted, you let the the Bush administration know you were the only psychologist, psychology-trained professional, you honed their skills on how the alert system... There used to be a lot more alert system. I don't know why they're not... I I, I think it was a sort of a... We felt politically sort of manipulated with the use of that, but you were involved in fine-tuning that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about your work with Homeland Security? Yes, actually, I was the only social or behavioral scientist at all that was on the advisory board for the Department of Homeland Security, and I was not just with the Bush administration. It continued into the Obama administration. I spent about a decade, and during that time, I was able to bring research that had been conducted by psychologists, sociologists, political scientists, to the attention of individuals in the Department of Homeland Security. One of the things that was most obvious was the alert system. And at the time, as you correctly point out, the alert system was used by, and this is not my, uh, this is not my assessment, this was a pretty clear assessment by a number of individuals at the time, that the alert system was used at the time for political purposes, both to raise anxiety as well as to activate the um, importance of the Department of Homeland Security. That changed over time. The alert system was originally designed for a very different purpose. It was designed for emergency management organizations. But in the early days after the September 11th terrorist attacks, it started to be used by the department as a way of alerting the the population 
about possible attacks that might occur. And it was very clear that this was not helping people, and it was just raising fear and anxiety without... It did a great job it, of it, it did, and what was really troublesome was that when the alert was reduced, there was no debriefing to explain to people why the alert had been raised and why it was now going down. And, and in the years after the Bush administration, there was a great deal of attention to the fact that this wasn't working, and it was abandoned, and we don't, we don't see it at all now. So the threshold for a disaster to which we're, you know, that we're witnessing, is it, is it a kind of a tree falling in the forest that um, if it's not our public, we're not traumatized as much? I mean, does it matter what the, the episode is to our feeling it and coping? I think if we don't hear about it, of course, it's, it's not relevant to us. But if we somehow get engaged in media portrayals of it over Regardless over of where again, in the world it is. Regardless of where in the world. Part of it, now I, I want to make clear that it won't have the same impact for everyone. So an individual who has had experiences, similar experiences in their past may be re-traumatized. It may trigger, as you pointed out at the very beginning, the, the uh, event to, to reoccur. And we find that individuals who've experienced or have, who have been exposed to violence in childhood are more susceptible to these kinds of events. Many people have asked me if we are actually ever going to become numb to these kinds of events. What do you say and to that? I really, uh, one, I mean, it's a challenging question. We have not in our data thus far seen any sign of habituation. What we are instead seeing is that people become at least activated for a short period of time or more sensitized to these events. And what they do is prime us to be attending to these kinds of experiences in our in, in our life. We, we monitor the, so the media, the social media, and I think the more we are exposing ourselves to these images and to these events, the more likely we are to be uh, at least distressed by it. I don't want to say that we would... Some, some people may have clinical consequences, but for most people, it's just very distressing. It engages us. We, it, we feel fearful and we're monitoring on our environment for the next event. And, you know, very recently we had multiple events within a week. And that kind of experience, I think, we haven't really studied that yet. What happens oh. when when you have three events in, in a, or four events in one week period, and then another event the next week, and another event the next week? I, you know, we're, we're almost in that phenomenon right now. I think we've been a few weeks, maybe not, uh, you know. I have to think about no, it. No, no, we have. I don't think so. Well, this this sort of begs a question that's off of. Um, I don't want to broadside you with this, but I, I imagine you you're prepared to respond. Is what is your concern about the public school or uh, the the K through twelve sort of pre traumatized making? Is is there trauma in doing the 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 2019 duck and cover exercise 
And it's a really interesting question. I certainly know that in countries like Israel, where there are often op- uh, potential bombings that students do prepare, I, I certainly see no negative consequences of engaging in preparation. Really? It's how it would be couched. But certainly being prepared will prevent mass uh, can, I, I don't want to say will, but certainly has the ability to prevent mass casualties. And that's why even on our campus, we have mass shooter trainings. And so I think it's it, it's important to recognize the way in which this is presented, uh, just like there are earthquake gr- drills in, in California for students. And I, I think that that gives people a sense of some control over what they can do, that they're not just helpless in the face of evil being perpetrated on, on them. Okay. Because I, I wonder about that, that, that there is the, the preparation for a school shooting, and then I've heard in recent workshops with the human trafficking that the law mm-hmm. school has been mm-hmm. really rigorously addressing, mm-hmm. is whether... There should be sex trafficking advisories, and I'm thinking, my God, what a list we're running here, and they haven't even gotten to knocking off a fresh creative paragraph. Yeah, you know, in fact, in my class uh, uh, last week, a student talked about a video, a public service announcement that I had not seen. Show that started out like the first day of school. Oh yeah, I've seen that. You have seen it now. No, I have not seen it. That actually shows somebody with a backpack and it's very, it's very benign the start, and then it gets really intense. Yes, and uh, you know, I, I have uh, again, I haven't seen it, but one of my students who studies this kind of uh, these kinds of events with me was very disturbed by it. So I think perhaps because it started out benign and it got very intense to warn children and to warn families. I, I, th- I think, you know, I, I, decades ago when I had a little son, I could talk to him about what to do about earthquakes. It would be very disturbing and I'd have to think about exactly how and when to introduce the possibility of a school shooting. Well, I think of, of a concern about that particular PSA is that there, it's very ambiguous. I think it's, an, it's more of an editorial Mm-hmm. Than it is an advisory, and we're 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 not sure what we're supposed to do with that. Right, right. And and as as you said, it sort of seamlessly moves from a, a you know, a very uh, pedestrian situation to there. I mean, there's like irony that's really pretty severe, mm-hmm. and maybe that's what was the concern for her. And I, but I do think that preparing students up for an earthquake or for an event, and giving clear messages about what one can do can put some control over an event that is uncontrollable. And it's really the uncontrollability and the unpredictability that creates so much of this distress. Well, I'd like to know, with the Me Too movement, is that any, is there a particular trauma with that? that mm-hmm. you've taken up or you're having the researchers that are under your wing, that they're, mm-hmm. they're doing some work that you think needs to be brought to this platform here? I'll tell you, actually, in the, when the Ford-Kavanaugh hearing was in the media 
I believe it's about a year ago now. Exactly. Your last week it was done. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We actually, one of my students contacted me the evening of the hearing and said that he had been reading about the fact that this event, this hearing, had been reactivating and re-triggering individuals who had been sexually assaulted in, in their lifetime and that there were large numbers of calls to rape trauma centers, etc. And so we actually began a study to look at this. Our data are still being analyzed. We've not yet published the work. Not yet. But we come back. But it it appears that this event did serve as a trigger for individuals who had previously experienced sexual assault or sexual violence. Well, I want to say before we uh, try to close here and have you respond to that. Was it not partly exacerbated by the way in which the nominee comported himself mm-hmm. in that? Mm-hmm. There was such the, I mean, and we know, we, we understand he had an audience of one that he was directing mm-hmm. that to. And well, and, the, and let's say a partisan sort of mm-hmm. receiver. Mm-hmm. But did that not that kind? I mean, I was looking for like if it was a dog, the teeth were mm-hmm, bared mm-hmm. in that uh, that comportment. Did that not make it even more problematic for tra- already traumatized people? Well, there, uh, I, and you know, I'm a psychologist. I'm please I, do. I stay apolitical. And yeah, I, I, that's how I was able to be on a Homeland Security Committee for both Bush and Obama. So I, I don't want to get into the sort of political. But I'm talking about the psychological. But, but, but I presence. will say that it could be psychologically traumatizing for individuals who have been accused of sexual assault, and so I think that it that event was viewed very differently depending on one's prior experience. And so I I think one, uh, it's clear from our data that some people empathized with Blasey Ford, and it's also clear from our data that some people empathized with Kavanaugh. Wow. So you're telling us that you're working on, um, that's, you're working on some Me Too studies. Is there Mm -hmm. any other, other pursuits right now we ought to imagine you involved in? Right now, I'm involved in studies that began in 2017 during the hurricane season, and my colleagues and I have been following individuals who have been at repeated threat or exposure to hurricanes, and we look at how people's prior experiences of trauma and their prior experiences of media exposure to trauma what the, how how those prior events play into how they respond to natural disasters just to the question that you asked me at the very uh, earlier on about the differences between right. natural and man-made disasters as i said sadly you know almost every week or two we could start a new study but we've really been trying to focus on large studies in which we follow people over time through it, repeated exposure to tragedy to see if we can understand what's the best way to assist people when these events occur in the future. And your subjects, are you going to be drawing from Americans? I mean, we've got a whole, there are people all over the Caribbean that are, they are, they've vanished. They've they've been a disappeared sort of community. Uh, Right now, my research is focusing primarily on individuals in the United States, but I have conducted studies in the aftermath of 
the earthquake in Chile, earthquakes in Indonesia, war in Israel. So I've conducted a number of studies across the world. And one of the things that we've seen are that both the similarities and the differences between these kinds of exposures, in large part influenced by people's cultural backgrounds and cultural experiences. There is so much. I hope that you can carve out time between all of this work that you're doing <laughs> for our benefit that uh, you will return and we can do more justice to all that heady work you're doing, Roxanne Silver. Thank you. Thank you. My guest was Roxanne Silver, and she is the Associate Director of the Advanced Program in the Office of Exclusive Excellence, and you heard her expertise as a professor of psychological science, medicine, and public health. We'll be right back with UCI Public Health Professor Scott Bartell on all the plastics. Thanks for staying tuned. Thank you for staying tuned. My next guest is Dr. Scott Bartell, UCI Professor of Public Health, Statistics, and Epidemiology. His research interest is environmental health methodology with an emphasis on environmental epidemiology, exposure science, and risk assessment. For the C8 Health Project, the C8 Science Panel Studies, Dr. Partell has worked on this is way over my uh, my range on linking fate and transport models and a pharmacokinetic kinetic model for pure perfluorooctanic acid or PFOA or the C8 with individual level residential histories and health outcomes. So that's there's the public health we're going to explore. He's developed formal statistical methods for biomarker-based exposure estimation and for estimating the biological half-life from observational data in the presence of ongoing exposures. He served on scientific advisory committees for the National Research Council, US EPA, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, the US Department of Energy, and the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Scott Bartell completed his BA in Environmental Science at UC Berkeley, his Master's in Science in Environmental Health at the University of Washington, his Master's of Science in Statistics at UC Davis, and his PhD in Epidemiology at UC Davis. He joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Scott Bartell. Thank you. So let's, since I, I am so, I am snowed by how much there is to understand and distinguishing between all those plastics out there. I first heard you at a talk nearby at the Applied Innovation. It was a whole sort of public forum on plastics, and you were on a PFAS panel. And we'll we'll get to how the governmental representatives are stepping up to this that you're uh, witnessing. But if you can begin by helping us understand how we can distinguish between the PFOS, PFOA, PFAS, and I mean the, the extent to which a consumer can understand the presence of those in 
everything. Because I'm when I read that there's PFAS in my dental floss that I use, mm-hmm. but I, there's no way I can see that label. Um, I now it's just game over. That it's everywhere. So help us make some distinctions and help us understand how we can get closer to understanding how we can find where it is and the things that we use every single minute of the day. These are great questions. Uh, Frankly, you know, many of us in the field who've been doing research, even like myself, for a good 15 years on these chemicals, uh, still sometimes find it overwhelming and confusing. You do. So you're not alone. <laughs> uh, but let me see if I can help clarify some of the issues and at least uh, go over some of the basics. So PFAS, which is the term you'll hear probably most often now in the in the news and in reports about these substances, is short for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And that term, PFAS, describes a whole class of related chemicals, uh, which includes really thousands of different chemicals. The class of chemicals is, has certain similarities in that they, they all have uh, very strong carbon-fluorine bonds, which makes them actually very persistent in the environment. And that's the idea. It's the commercial property that makes it a public health hazard. Well, I I would say the commercial property makes them very useful in commerce, and it makes them widely used. Uh, So they're used to make Gore-Tex, Scotchgard, uh, you know, many useful products, aqueous firefighting foams. So there's many great commercial uses for these compounds. Uh, Unfortunately, what that's led to is a lot of environmental contamination because uh, there's very few regulatory controls over over these chemicals. And it was really only recently in the last uh, decade or two that people started to worry about uh, their their toxic properties. Okay. So, well, let's talk about what your studies, um, what you're doing now. Uh, What you're studying, you're, you're looking at the pathways and I don't know if that means at the, the pathways, ex- including the manufacturing phase, or is it the at once it's distributed, looking at that pathway and what how that's affecting our environmental public health? Right. So the studies I've been involved with are largely health studies. So what we're trying to do is basically look at uh, people who have exposures to these PFAS through uh, primarily drinking water in the studies I've been involved in. Uh, actually, uh, starting in West Virginia, Ohio, we were involved in the C8 uh, Health Project C8 Science Panel studies uh, for many years there. And more recently, we've uh, been uh, uh, selected as one of the sites for a national study run by CDC, ATSDR, uh, to actually study these chemicals here in Orange County. It turns out that they're in the drinking water in North Orange County as well. Center for Disease Control, I don't know what ATSR is. Oh, ATSDR is the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. Ah, okay. And they're uh, closely affiliated with, uh, with CDC now. And they actually specialize in running environmental health uh, investigations like this. Okay, and I know they've been in, they're involved in, with the plumes in our local area, what's in uh, public uh, properties and so I now this is ringing a, a bell so right. um, so what are you finding so far well our study here just started four days ago so okay. this is very but, new here the, but building on what you yes. previously found yeah what we found in in West Virginia actually oh. uh, uh, over many many years this is actually looking at about 70,000 people who lived near a, a large chemical manufacturing plant that was in the primary one of the primary production sites for PFOA, uh, which is one of the the PFAS chemicals that was heavily used, which has since been uh, mostly phased out of production in the U.S. 
Uh, but it's somewhere else in the world. It's somewhere else in the world. So it's and it's our problem still. And it's persistent in the environment. It yes. doesn't go away. And so this chemical was emitted from the plant uh, for many, many years. It's still in the groundwater there. They're now treating the, the water before uh, serving it in public water systems. Uh, but there was many years of exposure. It's also persistent in the body. The half-life is several years long, which means that it, it really takes like a decade or more to actually clear this chemical from your body after you consume it. But since it's persistent, clearing from the body, it's somewhere else. Uh, it doesn't break down. Uh, right. That's right. It's yeah, we forever. don't metabolize it. And you're right. It basically goes right back, uh, you know, into the sewage system. And back into, into the, the water column. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So our, our study, actually, uh, we spent a lot of time carefully reconstructing what we thought the past exposures were through drinking water. And that's where the fate and transport modeling came in. Worked very closely, actually, with uh, Professor Detweiler here in uh, environmental engineering uh, and uh, and one of my graduate students who had an engineering background to really very carefully reconstruct what we thought was going on based on wind speed, wind direction, groundwater movement in terms of where these chemicals had gone historically since production started in the 1950s. And then we used that to actually try to sort our study participants into who was less exposed, who was more highly exposed, and then saw if conditions like, like cancer and immune function were uh, increased in those with higher exposures after accounting for other known causes of the disease. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Scott Bartell, UCI Professor of Public Health Statistics and Epidemiology, examining the effects of uh, it's the poly and the... the, the, uh, the Per and polyfluoroalkyl substance, uh, but I, we could just call them PFAS. PFAS. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. That helped. So I'd like to know, in preparation for this interview, you gave me a little insight, but how do you, can you tell our listeners, do you feel that the local and the federal representatives understand this public health issue? I, I think they do, actually. And, and there's been a lot of movement just in the last year or so on these issues and a lot more attention. Really, one of the triggers for that was a few years ago, EPA required for the first time water systems around the country to actually test for six of the more common PFAS chemicals. And that's when it really became evident that this was a, a national problem and not just, you know, a, a few sites, but, but really six million people around the U.S. Uh, with with levels that exceed the EPA health advisories or had at least one measurement that exceeded the health advisory values. And so our, uh, our state officials are actually paying very close attention to this. In fact, just instituted a month or two ago new reporting requirements so that every water system with uh, really measurable levels of the two legacy uh, PFAS, the oldest ones, PFOA and PFOS, uh, which have been mostly phased out, but again, are still present in the right. environment. Right. Uh, water systems now have to report this to their customers. And some water systems have chosen to actually shut down the contaminated wells uh, because of concerns about, wow. about the potential health effects. So if East Orange, for example, I understand, has uh, maybe shut down most or all of their, of their uh, local wells now and is relying entirely on, on uh, state water. Is that a very broadly known 
I, Action? It, it, you know, I don't it, think I've heard that. When we get to water conferences, <laughs> right. they don't say, oh, by the way, these are this infrastructure is offline now. Well, and, and that's actually, uh, to, I think this is actually one bright spot locally is that I think for the last couple of years, at least the water systems I've been talking to in Orange County have largely responded when they see high levels by shutting down those wells out of an abundance of caution. I mean, we do have plenty of evidence that these chemicals are toxic in animals. There's emerging evidence, including from our studies in West Virginia, that they may also cause some of the same problems in humans. So there's a lot of reason to be concerned. But it's also yet very early uh, in the in the health research on these chemicals. We okay. just don't know as much about them as we do, say, for lead or other, other chemicals that we've studied for, you know, 100 years. So, Scott, you were talking about how EPA had been addressing this. And we're watching lots of rollbacks of federal oversight mm-hmm. and agencies. I'm also a little concerned about the the morale and the, the brain drain and people who can't can't stay there. But so you're saying that at least we have state officials that are minding this, this sort of this may be a very necessary kind of institutional response while the leadership is not there in I, the White House. I, I, well, yes, I, I think I'd agree with that. Uh, EPA did set a health advisory a few years ago, uh, but a lot of scientists who've looked at that think it's not protective enough. Uh, and I, I guess I'm in that camp. I think it should be lower. Okay. Um, and a lot of states are actually moving on their own. So several states have actually instituted uh, formal requirements for water systems to shut down their wells if they have even lower levels than the health advisory of, of uh, limit of EPA. California has done that yet, but I understand oh, really? it's oh. under consideration. We okay. do have the strict reporting requirement, and that in of itself has led a lot of water districts to take a very close, hard look at their wells and the contamination issues and give this serious thought. But there, there's a sort of a social justice equity aspect. If not every state is carrying this, there's going to be the haves and haves nots in the public health protection. So Absolutely. It's, uh, it's not enough. It's yeah. necessary. It isn't yeah. sufficient. And I, I, if I have yes, time, please do. I'll, I'll add that, you know, there are uh, national representatives working on this issue. Okay. So I, I was pleasantly surprised, actually, at the conference uh, we both attended. Congressman Harley Ruda spoke uh, a little bit before my session. I was actually pleasantly surprised by how knowledgeable he's he was about was these he? chemicals. Yeah, and I understand he he uh, serves on a, a water committee for Congress. So yeah, he's on his, infrastructure. Exactly. So that's how it's dialing down. Yeah. Yes. So so his job is to pay attention to this. But but he seemed to actually know what he was talking about, which is great to see. He's actually introduced a bill this year, uh, which uh, is still in Congress. Uh, but it's let me see if I have okay. this written down. The PFAS User Fee Act of two. 2019. Wow. I haven't read the whole bill yet, but I just read a summary this morning before coming on. And I think the idea is to actually require users of PFAS to uh, pay a fee to help basically cover, you know, the massive cleanup costs that we're going to have. Right, because there's externalities as yeah. public health and environmental and urban planners talk about. Let's wrap this all the okay. way up here. I just want you to uh, tell us how appalled you are, though, that when you hear when like Greenpeace that's working on campaigns to end just to work with the front end of all the production of plastics and they are informing us. They understand that the petrochemical companies are going to multiply to fourfold how much is going to be plastics are going to be produced from the the current levels so it's sort of like you're trying to remediate what's already been introduced but we have problems houston with if if this is all going to be ratcheted totally upward Right. And I mean, the, the, the issue with the PFAS is really that even though we've, I think, taken some pretty good actions nationally yeah. to, to, you know, scale down the use of the two 
you know, most heavily used legacy ones before in PFOS, there's really a whole suite of other PFAS chemicals uh, that we're starting to learn are also toxic that, you know, basically production just shifted to. Uh, we call this regrettable substitution. In, in right, right, right. And I had Marty Mulvihill from SaferMate uh, on um, mm-hmm. at the very beginning of this year, and he talked about that. Are you working with SaferMate at all with some of their... Yet, no. But you know about them. I've heard of them, yeah. And they're, they're trying to... They're, it's like a kind of an investment platform and, uh, more importantly, an education platform so consumers understand that... We ought, we ought to be very attentive about what products we have, That uh, what's the persistence of any yeah. of the portions of that product. Yeah. And if I can return yes, to do. that issue, because yes, your do. first question was, yes. you know, how is a consumer supposed yeah. to know? We can't. We can't. Yeah, there's no labeling requirements for so these chemicals. So we've got to find which department here in academia is going to pick up on. I guess that's a school of mirage. It's, uh, yeah, that's a law. It's a, re, it's a regulatory and legal issue. Uh, you know, if, if there was a law mandating reporting requirements, then, uh, then you know, we'd be able to find that out. Uh, but it is safe to say that if you use anything that's a paper or cloth product that has waterproofing, then at one time... Or greaseproofing. Or greaseproofing. Anything yeah, proofing. Then at one time, PFAS have been used, probably. <laughs> They're explored as a, as a potential way to make that, that waterproofing occur. But it's very difficult. The, the landscape shifts very quickly. They're constantly shifting the formulations. There are thousands of these chemicals. And uh, so even for those of us paying very close attention, it's, it, because of the lack of reporting requirements, it's, it's really impossible to know. On that, that daunting note... Scott Bartell, thank you for being on the show, giving us all the time being in the studio today. Oh, my pleasure. Scott Bartell is UCI professor of public health statistics and epidemiology at UC Irvine, and he's examining the effects of the PFAS in our groundwater, surface water, and our own bodies. That's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on Terry Tempest-Williams, who's just published her latest book, Erosion, a book for these times with her careful hand on our souls here and our natural environment. Then in the second segment, Dr. Carl Kotman will cover the state of Alzheimer's research in advance of UCI Minds Alzheimer's Association annual conference, the theme of which is going to be 30 years of discovery, hope on the horizon. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. <music>